0: And I'm Lofty Fulton and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Something amazing's happened. Go on,
1: tell me. I found Jason Furman's phone number. No so way. We should ring him and see if we, we can should. buy some dog equipment off him.
0: We've got to put this to rest once and for all. There's so many people harassing me about his website and you. So, yeah, let's ring this idiot. Ring him up. Okay, hang on a sec. It's ringing. I'm excited. Hello. Hey, Jason.
2: Yes, Patricia. <laughs>
0: I'm
1: ringing to uh, try and buy some dog equipment off you. Yeah, what do you want? I don't know, some tugs, some leashes, some, some of that kind of stuff. Can I do that over the phone?
0: No. Okay, let's would get, you do it over the phone? Mate, let's get down to the nitty gritty in the business here. Have you got a website or not? Of
2: course. What? Yeah, of course. I just didn't want to tell you buggers about it.
0: You're an idiot. <laughs>
1: so please tell us what is your website?
2: It is www.com e i n z w e c k E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com.
1: You heard it here, folks. com, where you can buy oh all God, your I dog training equipment. It. Head over there right now purchase yourself some tugs, leashes. What else do you sell, Jason?
2: Uh, plenty of HS products, uh, mm-hmm. dog full equipment, four mills, anything any normal dog person would want. Wonderful. No no. Okay, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's it. Hey Cut Jason. It yes, Glenn. You're still a bullfed. Bye.
1: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And here we are at the IACP with our next guest. We have Dr. Cassara Andre and her student, John, who's going to say his own name. Uh, João Lourenço. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And you're from Brazil. Yes. Fantastic. I'm glad that I didn't even try to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Save the trouble. So- we just finished your presentation. I missed mm-hmm. the start because we're doing another interview, but I was fascinated by it and we've grabbed you and demanded an interview and we're taking up more of your time <laughs> and did know you're busy, but you are a veterinarian specializing in like administration of cannabis products to animals.
2: Yes. I will change what you said just a little bit to say, okay. uh, specializing in the education of the endocannabinoid system. Okay, cool. is cannabis plays into, but just talking about the endocannabinoid system is what I love to do.
1: Okay. Awesome. And so this is a a relatively new field, right? How long has this been around?
2: Well, we've really understood the ECS since the 1980s. Mm. We knew a little bit about it before then, but it's a recent science. There's so much that we don't know and so much that we're discovering every, every week, every month. There's a new paper that comes out. It's really mind boggling how much information there is.
1: Okay, when you say that there's a new paper that comes out, like who's leading that research? Who's doing that That's kind of stuff?
2: That's one of the things that's really interesting. So thinking about where we are in science right now, how many countries have the ability to really dive into a new discovery, mm-hmm. it means that we're seeing a lot of countries produce their own papers. So Israel is one of the forerunners on okay. cannabis papers, but there's stuff coming out in the US all the time, Canada for sure, the UK. So if you think about what just as a whole scientific landscape, how much new information is coming, it can be really overwhelming to try to stay on top of. Yeah,
1: I bet. <laughs> Absolutely. And I know this is going to be almost outrageous to say, but give us the five minute version on what is the endocannabinoid system. So I, until recently myself, had no idea what that was at all and um, educated myself via YouTube. So I'm probably not particularly well <laughs> educated either. So what is it? What, what role does it play in the human body as well as in animals?
2: So if you think about the system that allows us to maintain homeostasis between the smaller separate systems, so between respiratory, cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, those are all distinct systems that we know and understand. Well, what makes them integrate together across to become that whole biologic system? We're, we're finding out that it's the endocannabinoid system. Okay. So if you think about what does the ECS do, regulation, balance, homeostasis, you'd be right. That is its function in the body.
1: Okay, cool. And how does it measured? Like what well, is it, the ECS? It's not something I can see. It's not a part of you, right? Like it, how do you measure that?
2: Well, yes and no. So we absolutely can see and measure parts of it. So okay. we see receptors that are very specific to the endocannabinoid system that we didn't know existed before. We have endocannabinoids. So things that we make in our own bodies that our animal animals make in their own bodies. We can see those. We can measure those. Mm-hmm. There's lots of, uh, ancillary or around those pieces that we're not too sure about yet. They're kind of called orphan receptors or molecules that we're not sure where they belong, but we can see them. We can measure them. We just don't know all the pieces yet and exactly how they play.
1: And, and you see and measure that via blood test or?
2: By a blood test or, um, you know, in the laboratory, like you can do a uh, brain biopsy and see actually the receptors. So, so these are structures just like your serotonin receptors or okay. a nerve. They are physical things within our body.
1: And when you say the production of those endocannabinoids in mm-hmm. the body, <laughs> that's from their endocrine system that you're making? So out?
2: so it's different than the endocrine system, but it does have that same prefix of endo. So it's inside, right. but it's in endocannabinoid. So cannabinoids that are made within our own okay, body. Sorry,
1: so, so I get it. It's a totally different mm-hmm, thing, but yes. so where are they made in the body?
2: Yeah. That's such a cool question. I wonder if John's willing to take that one on. Cause we just, he just did an actual little presentation about this for us. Yeah, Do you yeah, want to give that one a try? Yesterday. Uh, so uh, when you have the neurotransmission in your body, uh, it's between two neurons, and you have one presynaptic neuron that transmits your signal to your postsynaptic neuron. Okay. And uh, the thing that we're finding out about the endocannabinoid system is that uh, the endocannabinoids are produced by the postsynaptic neuron. So that's new because it's signaling the presynaptic neuron to modulate how many uh, neurotransmitters is going to be released. Okay. So it's located on your neurons, on your presynaptic neurons in a way that it can modulate itself uh, so it can increase or decrease your neurotransmission.
1: Okay, cool.
2: And very, very interesting when you think about the differences between endocannabinoids and the neurotransmitters that we're more used to. So Mm -hmm. if you kind of have a background in physiology, most of our neurotransmitters are contained in little vesicles or bubbles within one of the neurons, and then they're released across the synaptic gap to carry on the message. So they're sort of stored pre-made. What's really interesting about the endocannabinoids is they are made on demand. So that's really a piece of that regulation and balance of you have to have this temporal aspect of being able to change with the body's needs. So the endocannabinoids float in the cell membrane, just inactive structural proteins just there. And then when that cell receives a signal, it then cleaves that inactive molecule to become active and then it does its job. And that's really cool because of how fine tuned you can get. Mm. It's, immediate, but then also gone. So again,
1: mm.
2: balance. That's what gives us that regulation system.
1: Yeah. Right. So we have a pretty broad spectrum audience. So for a lot of the idiots like me, that probably just flew straight over their head. <laughs> uh, but I know for some people we have uh, a lot of people who are really into technical mm-hmm. health and that sort of stuff. So hopefully they got all that better Fantastic. than me. Uh, but so why do I care? What effect is that going to see? And what 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 benefits, you, what can you mm-hmm. change in regards to health by, knowing, measuring, and supplementing that endocannabinoid system?
2: So if you think a little bit more about what homeostasis means, it means that the body is able to respond to its environment. So that means adaptability, flexibility, survival. And so what we're talking about, how the endocannabinoids are made, that on-demand piece, it means that when that ECS is healthy, that body is the best it can be to adapt to its situation. Okay. Does that help a little bit like that? It it is the essence of survival. Um, to in today's culture, we don't necessarily see running from polar bear or saber tooth tiger survival type Mm -hmm. thing, but we still see particularly in our animals, humans too, but we mostly care about our animals at the moment. Talking about those, we see them better able to adapt to new situations, less stress, less anxiety, less pain, less inflammation because their ECS is able to modulate as, as they need.
1: Mm -hmm. Cool. So, uh, what are the different cannabinoids that you can supplement with?
2: So um, I think you're asking more, what are the external cannabinoids? So we have the endocannabinoids that we ourselves make that mammals make. Then you have a class of external or exogenous cannabinoids. They're Mm. still going to act on those same receptors, but they're made outside the body. Sure. So then there's two classes, synthetic that we just made in the laboratory, easy Mm -hmm. or phytocannabinoids that a plant has made. And that's mostly what the hype's about, the phytocannabinoids. Mm -hmm. So, when you think about what is in that phytocannabinoid class, it's over a hundred different molecules. Mostly today we're talking about CBD, THC, like the top six or 10, but there's over a hundred that this plant makes that can interact with the ECS. So again, thinking about what we have to learn, there's a lot left to learn there.
1: Yeah, and so when you say the plant, are you talking about cannabis?
2: Cannabis is one of the best plant genuses to make these molecules. Other plants do, but just not as well. Right. So we are usually talking about cannabis, but it's not exclusive to cannabis, just does it better than anybody else.
1: Right. Okay. And I, I understand that there's like CBA, CBC. Mm-hmm. Why is CBD the guy that everybody talks about when the others are, are also present, right? Most of the time?
2: Yes. So CBD, THC, those two molecules have received the most attention because they're the biggest by volume okay. in a plant so so they are there the most we discovered them first we kind of got to know them better but as we look most of the time other cannabinoids exist mm-hmm. so you see CBD's precursor CBDa or the, with an acid group still attached, it has its own set of properties. Then if you heat it or dry it in a certain way, that acid group falls off and then it becomes CBD. Uh, but it still has its own effects in its acid form. And then that same, true thing, same thing is true of C- THC, THCA, you can kind of go on from there.
1: Okay, cool. So for the ignorant amongst us, like, I don't know, someone that spent his whole adult life in the army and is, knows nothing about any uh, marijuana products, mm-hmm. Can you explain THC, what role it plays, mm-hmm. uh, CBD as well, and and why you might want a ratio of one over the other and the effects that they, you know, why would I want to put that in my body? What's going to happen?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of break that down and do CBD first. That's a little bit well known. It's probably easier intersection for a lot of people. CBD is really good at supporting our own body's mechanisms. So we talked about endocannabinoids, that they have a job, a purpose, CBD is very good at coming in and stopping the destruction of our endocannabinoids. So essentially our resources remain longer. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? So it just supports whatever the body was trying to do. So CBD is really good at regulating, support, that type of thing, whole body type thing. THC is very is, is much more specific. So especially at the neuron level, it is going to actually change and modulate the signal. So it is going to help calm down a signal, speed up a signal. So with THC, you get more effect, stronger effect. So that's why you have to be a little bit careful, but, but really useful in clinical cases. Mm-hmm. So then you take the two of those, and when you use them in conjunction, they often offset each other's bads. So you can get too high from THC. We've seen that in our dogs. We see that in people. If you have enough CBD, those two interact in some really interesting ways at the receptor to prevent either one from being too much out of balance.
1: Okay. So you say, get my dog too high, right? (laughs) So (laughs) why do I want my dog high in the first place? What am I treating by doing that?
2: So again, recognizing that THC acts very strongly within the nervous system, Mm -hmm. that means that when we have a neurologic condition, THC probably needs to be in that treatment paradigm. It's going to talk directly to that neuron. But at the same time, as we're figuring out what dose is effective, we might go too high. So we might change that neuron's function a little bit too much. And if you're a human, you experience that high effect. And Mm -hmm. we see it in our animals with them being a little bit dysphoric, a little bit wobbly. That's not the treatment goal, but it's more that we don't yet know how exactly to dose cannabis. Is it based on body weight? Is it based on how many times a day? So there is some play there that we have to figure out exactly where we need them to be. So we don't want them to be high but we do sometimes need to affect the nervous system and there's a give and and take there. Mm
1: -hmm. And then the role of CBD then, uh, what would that be versus THC? Like uh, it's my understanding, so CBD is great for inflammation, is
2: that? It is is really good for inflammation of a mild kind. So if you think about neurologic inflammation or neurologic pain, you will again need THC in that mix. So if you just think about like a great analogy is if you have an achy joint, and it just starts aching, you're going to go with a joint supplement or kind of try to fix it with nutrition or support. That's kind of the CBD side, the softer side, the Mm -hmm. supportive side. And then if it's really having an issue, you're going to go with a more stronger pharmaceutical, really change something in the body. And that's what THC is really going to do. So we have a lot of those parallels of what's the condition, how bad is it and what do we need to change it? So softer versus the stronger side of cannabis. Uh
1: Yeah, cool. That makes sense. I understand that. So, why do I want to give this to my dog? What uh, would be the signs and symptoms that make me say I'm going you know, to look into supplementing with the, or affecting the endocannabinoid system?
2: Very good pronunciation.
1: I got it. It's only the hundredth time and <laughs> well I got done. it right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so remember that the ECS is responsible for balance. So what we see as clinical signs that there may be something offset in that ECS can be very diverse Mm -hmm. so we might see an animal just not be interactive or maybe to have too much anxiety so one of his systems may be off and we can fix that through cannabis we can also see pain be a really big reason why pet parents pursue cannabis that means their musculoskeletal system or their nervous system is off and we can still bring balance there We might see the gi system with diarrhea vomiting inappetence and we can still use the ecs to fix it but the reason that's so cool is because we're still working at the ECS level that is trying to regulate the entire body instead of one specific system. You know, when people were first starting to talk about cannabis, it was cannabis will fix everything. And as a practitioner, that's really hard to swallow for me. Like there's no magic bullet. There's nothing that just fixes everything. But as we understand more about how the ECS system works, we understand that it interacts with so many different systems. It actually does make sense that many things would be corrected by it because we're just trying to rebalance the entire body.
1: Sure. So you said the interesting thing there, anxiety. Certainly I think that is one of the the greatest reasons that through breeding practices and and where we're at with dogs at the moment is there's a lot of anxious dogs around, Yeah. right? And do you think maybe would you agree that that's maybe the, the best use for this or, or the, the primary use or what you're seeing a lot of? Is that for, for stemming anxiety?
2: I would definitely say that it's one of the top reasons pet parents ask about it. I would say it's probably one of the more difficult areas to work in. Okay. So if you have pain, if you have inflammation, something physically wrong with the system, it's much easier to say, aha, we changed something. We mm-hmm. we made that inflammation cascade die down. We made the dog eat better. But what is anxiety? You know, that can both be internal. Mm -hmm. It can be that they have an anxious parent. It can be that someone, neighbors came over and the neighbors were anxious, right? Our animals just absorb the emotions around them. So that's why anxiety can be very, very difficult to work in because there's so many aspects of it. However, one of the reasons that ECS is an amazing way to address anxiety is because it's basis is to help that animal adjust to its environment better. Okay. So if we can't stop the environment from being anxiety producing, maybe we can work on it from the different direction and say animal body, you can handle this. You can adapt to whatever you need to do. It's going to be okay. And so that anxiety isn't produced, even though the situation is still scary. I got this.
0: Mm-hmm. I can do it. And would that be a similar role in aggression?
2: I'm going to say yes, carefully, Mm. because most aggression comes from a root of anxiety and Mm -hmm. an animal say, I don't want to be in this situation anymore. Mm. And because I'm so anxious, I'm going to take an aggressive act to end it, to make sure that this stops whatever is making me anxious. There can also be aggression from a true physiologic imbalance. Mm -hmm. Cannabis can also work on that area. It's just a little bit of a different paradigm. So Yes, to so the bigger part of your question, absolutely. We just have to be careful about identifying where the aggression absolutely.
0: comes from. Absolutely.
1: Mm. As dog trainers, we on this show, let me choose my words carefully. Now <laughs> that I'm talking to a vet, uh, we're not anti-pharmaceuticals, but certainly believe that it's largely overprescribed a lot of the time. Mm. And of course, there are cases I've had training cases where all the things that I know should work, like this is behavioral science, and I'm mm. getting nowhere. I can say for sure then, okay, well, let's explore meds and you should go see a veterinary behavioralist and, and look at doing that. Do you think this is a, a better avenue to go down? A- and also the second part to that question then is, do you find that you, maybe if you're using CBD or THC as uh, to, for an anxiety issue, I guess that's where we're more focused uh, as trainers, right? Mm-hmm. We'll talk about uh, real health as in um, you know acute illness, that kind of thing in a moment. But do you find that maybe uh, a treatment on... You know, with CBD or THC is a good stopgap to begin the counterconditioning process to then toughen, strengthen the animal in and of himself that he no longer needs that. Or is it a is it a long term solution? Like, okay, once we start this, if you get the effect, you're going to be on it forever, which is fine because it's it's not like it's it's going to tear their liver apart like a lot of other drugs would. Or have you seen cases where we go, okay, hey, we've got you below threshold through the use of this. Now we can begin a, a training protocol and really desensitize, countercondition. And now we can fight like we knew from
2: it. Great question. Kind of complicated in there. So uh-huh. I'll, I'll take a couple of pieces of it. I firmly believe that cannabis is a piece on that scale mm-hmm. from what you're talking about from the just start off with counter conditioning, retraining in the beginning, all the way to a pharmaceutical intervention that really what you're, think, you're saying is a, a scale of strength or a scale of efficacy and how much we override the body's normal responses, right? If we're just on the behavior modification side, we're relying on the body to accept this new paradigm, learn something new, all that memory is intact, all those pieces to the very far end of a pharmaceutical saying, we are going to change the levels of neurotransmitters in your system, mm-hmm. like we're going to force that to happen. So it's important in cannabis medicine that you don't get stuck on one spot on that spectrum it's that we move the animal along that spectrum based on how it's changing so we can have the same case that we need to have in a pharmaceutical for two weeks while we get them home out of the shelter into this kind of a stable environment, then we don't need those pharmaceuticals because we're using cannabis and maybe some stronger cannabis. We're using some THC-based at the same time as pharmaceuticals. And then as they become more conditioned to their environment, life's not so bad, we don't need even cannabis or maybe we don't need the THC-containing, we just need the CBD side. And then we're into just today is a good day. I'm here to learn something new. So I I think that it's a great question for lots of reasons, but my favorite reason is that it addresses the paradigm with which we work with medicine. Mm -hmm. And yes, you're talking about anxiety, but I'm talking about all, even the acute illnesses. It's where on the scale is this animal's body and how can we most effectively intervene? But that's not just like one answer, take a pill, call me in the morning. It's how are you tomorrow? What do you need today? What yeah. are your What are your specific goals at this point in time? Not what is easy for me to dose and mm-hmm. write on a script. So
1: <laughs> I've got so many questions. This is going to go on forever. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Something that uh, I've always talked about in dog training is the uh, the counter conditioning of, uh, like, say, storm phobia, mm-hmm. uh, where the mechanism, the, the trigger is outside of your control. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about, you know, some people then, like, you know, We're big on the show. We talk about the uh, strengthening dogs. That's kind of my plight is I'm always about like just make the toughest dog that you can, Mm -hmm. teach him to sit later, but make him a strong animal in his mind and and his body. But you get cases where in the training my storm phobic dog is here comes the storm and in those cases people then medicate their dog maybe just to get through the storm. Mm -hmm. Is that a great use for uh, cannabis products at that time? And then my follow-on, my my second part of that question is – I don't know if this is measurable, but do dogs then get paranoid when they're high? And so could you potentially be like, yeah, he looks calmer, things I can observe, he's he's just chilling out on the couch, but is he going on like a mystical journey at that point and freaking out while it's happening?
2: I love these questions. I think you're asking the exact right ones that are really on the cusp of what we know about ECS science and our current paradigm. So fantastic. Let me address this by going back to physiology for just a second and laying a little bit of groundwork. So we talked about the neuron and how cannabinoids are really good at making that communication between neurons in the nervous system better. So is that good? Can we kind of leave that there? Mm -hmm. Like it's making sure that communication throughout the nervous system is functioning well. So this is really good when we think about mixed signals. So something that is not scary, but is perceived as scary is received into the nervous system. So we can use cannabis to say that signal is not appropriate, right? It's, it, need, it can allow us to regulate that how much we're shocked by our environment down to like, oh, nothing bad really happened. However, if we put an animal in that, we call it a neuromalleable state, so neuromodulation where we, they can receive these new thoughts and paradigms. What if I administer cannabis to an animal? And then something scary still really happens. Mm. So we don't know this. This is just my personal professional hypothesis, something I'm working on in some of my cases now. It may be possible that when the pet owner, here, Papa, cannabis administration pill, treat, and then I'm off. And then while the owner's gone at work, the mailman still comes, the neighbor dog still is barking at me, the neighbor kids are still throwing things. We may be reinforcing negative training mm-hmm. habits because we're not thinking about the timeline with which cannabis is used. That doesn't mean it's a bad function. It just means we have to know how to handle it better. So more towards you making a strong dog or a strong animal, it's how do we make their system able to take anything from the outside and I can handle this, I can get through it instead of just kind of shutting down and I don't, yeah. I don't know how to handle myself. So there's lots of pieces in there and feel free to ask another piece. I'm not sure that I actually answered your question, but it's what's happening at the physiologic level. And what does that translate to in terms of memory and learning? And can we be inside there in the middle and make sure that it gets smoothed out and, yeah. and happens really well?
1: Yeah. That's just always my concern when you're dealing with any sort of anxious uh, being Absolutely, is that when you medicate their body, mm-hmm. they're then kind of trapped in a useless body and, and, and are so scared of what's going on. Like I can only imagine myself, um, you know, like it, It's those nightmares where your body's not working correctly, and Mm -hmm. like I'm still just as scared of the mailman. I'm totally worried. Only now I'm slowed. I'm retarded in a way, and I'm not as effective uh, at escaping at fight or flight because Mm -hmm. I'm in this this slowed body. Um, That's what I always worry about, and I just I guess that there's no way to measure that, right? To then say.
2: But I will say there are a few things we know in there that will kind of help towards that. So not exactly, but here's a couple of points that I think will help. Cannabis is not a true sedative or like an alpha agonist that's going to stop or muscle relaxer is going to stop the ability to mm-hmm. move. So we don't see that um, awake under under anesthesia type paradigm. Like it, it, because it is working on the entire system, most of those systems are going to be in unison. Okay. Perfect. So that's part of your question. We're yeah. not really going to see the, Oh my gosh, I can't move because I'm on cannabis. However, we can see animals get too high in that, what they're feeling doesn't necessarily match their environment or they feel like they can't respond to it. But this usually happens when particularly a dog receives a lot of cannabis, like gets into someone's stash and overloads all of their, their receptors. And then what do we do as humans? Oh, my gosh. Drive them to the vet. Loud. Loud lights or loud sounds, bright yeah. lights. So there are ways that we can kind of help them through that and coach them through that. So it, it still comes down to any time we, we modify neurotransmitters or behavior, there has to be a human guiding that and, mm. and doing that, making sure it goes in the right direction.
0: So what do you recommend? Getting him on the couch and getting lots of snacks for him?
2: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So actually for a thunderstorm phobia, one of the most effective ways is to start two, three months out. Yeah, And instead of... Your thunder shirt only goes on when it's about to storm. Oh my gosh, now I'm scared because yeah. I have my thunder shirt yeah, on. Exactly. We start on bright, sunny days when we're going to the park and you receive cannabis because mm. we're trying to train those neurons that their communication is effective, that it's saying, hey, I feel happy. Oh, I feel a little bit nervous, but I'm fine. So you train those early. And so then when the thunderstorm comes, yep. you still follow the same pattern, but it's not a new pattern.
0: Mm. I was interested in a conversation that you were having with Pat before when he was talking about when the body is actually slowed and due to something like THC or or the impact of it, if the stimulus did occur and the dog did try to run away but was much slower at it, I wonder if the dog would actually have comprehension that, oh, while all this was happening and, and I was trying to run away but was least effective, what I thought might have happened didn't actually happen. So I'm wondering if the dog has a bit of a an epiphany during that stage of oh maybe i don't need to be so afraid of this
1: yeah i'm just a, wondering in if in it a has of a p- conditioning a p- yeah
2: you know i think that that can and does happen when the human's present mm. so when the animal has a chance like i uh, maybe i'll just wait half a second but then their human is i'm fine mm-hmm. right but that's what we yeah. do in behavior Strong, firm anyway leadership. that the animal just has more of a chance to connect to that human if the animal's alone mm-hmm. I think that their their fear response or flight response is going to be stronger of I mm. can't get away. Yep. But again, that's why we instruct parent, pet parents to be there when administered, especially the first couple of times, so you are directing what's happening. But I will um, tell you an anecdote that kind of applies to that, like how animals respond to this. Mm. So when we use cannabis in dogs, it, we have to be a lot more careful as we ramp them up to the dose that we want, especially very interactive dogs. So if... They want to go get the ball, and suddenly their nervous system just isn't quite doing what they told it to. It We really think that that's kind of the root of some of their anxiety. Of I The signal that I thought I told my legs to do is not being carried out. Yep. So we want to creep them up slowly so that they get used to functioning, and they do. It usually takes them a couple of doses before they're like, yep, yeah, I totally got this.
0: Yep. But
2: then it's also very interesting to see that we don't tend to have any of those problems with cats. We can actually go up pretty quickly on their THC dose. And one of my very good technician friends says, well, it's because cats are stoners anyway. (laughs) If they don't feel like doing anything, they're just going to lay there. But you think about it, that if they feel like sleeping or just sitting still, they're going to, and their body's going to get used to it versus a dog is more likely to, no, I have to come. I have to bring you the ball and kind of, make their body do something that it doesn't want to. So I think it's when we see that disconnect that we need to be concerned for some inducing anxiety.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that's probably a good time to give the confession I was saying to you before. So I, I use CBD myself and I've had actually huge effects. I've got a lot, of, I was in the army for my whole life. I've got a lot of my bodies destroyed and I, it's certainly for acute things is not that helpful, but for just day to day, it's been great. And I, I did try giving it to my dog only a little bit. And as I said to you before, like noticeably, he, as most working dogs is a tightly wound ball of anxiety. Mm. And it just took the edge off of that. And probably only noticeable by me one day when I said, Hey, you want to go to work? And he kind of gave me this face of like, I could take it or leave it. right? (laughs) Which is, uh, you know, told me for sure, like this is working on him. And therefore I'm cutting him off because (laughs) (laughs) you need to work. in old age, I'll put you back on it. Right. Uh, But for now you're cut off. But I think that would be just an edge, an amazing edge in modifying behavior for the long term. Just being able to just, hey, calm down just a little bit and relax. And what he had was hemp-based because that's all we can get in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no THC and definitely uh, observable to me. And it, not, no big difference, but just like I would say, hey, yeah. this is not the same crazy dog that I enjoy the company of.
2: Well, what's really interesting maybe for you to think about, what's what's your dog's name? Remy. Remy, for, for Remy, is what's happening to make his retirement Fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, we, in all of our working dogs, we see they use their bodies quite hard. And then there's a time when that arthritis catches up and those muscle small tears and strains. Could we implement more of a repair regimen while they're still working Mm -hmm. that makes their retirement better? So timing when you administer cannabis, when he is specifically in a rest phase. So at night in the evening, knowing when it metabolizes out of his body and now he's ready to work, We don't know this, but the theory is solid, like the physiology is solid. We just need to prove it in research. Could we administer particularly a CBD-based product that supports his own endocannabinoids when we need him to repair Mm -hmm. so that he is better able to work when he's on next? And so this is what athletes do all the time, right, to have a drink – Drink your your milkshake or your recovery because we need to replenish the body. That's kind of what the ECS is doing is helping the body's own repair mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So you might just need to find a different time to dose him, and you might find that he works even better because his body was actually recovered okay. before it started.
1: L- awesome. Let's talk about that in uh, the onset, like how long it takes to to mm-hmm. begin working and how long it lasts, and yeah. and in regards to THC, CBD, and also. If we can discuss a bit where you talk about if you accidentally get your dog two stoned, how you mm-hmm. can maybe bring that down a little bit sure. via CBD.
2: So we'll start with time of onset. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it absolutely depends on how you administer. And there's a couple of big ways that we do that. So inhalations, mostly humans. So pretty instantaneous into the lungs, into the body. Next, most quickly, is going to be mucous membrane administration. So in animals, it's mostly putting on their gums, on their lips. So not actually swallowing, but mm-hmm. just on those very well vascularized tissue. Pretty instantaneous as well, 10-ish minutes, 10, 15 minutes. Then we have true oral absorption. So into the into the gut, into the stomach, 30, 45 minutes. But then you also see absorption through the small intestine, liver changing. So with a lot of things that happen there. So those are mostly the the ways you're talking about cannabis administration. And that kind of gives you a a suggested time to onset there. Um, How long it lasts depends on what its components are. CBD has a shorter lifespan in the body than THC does, but it depends on species. So we're finding that horses have a much longer time of action than dogs and cats. So this, again, is really the tip of science. It's stuff that we're figuring Mm. out now. But we do tend to see the CBD heavy or the hemp products last a shorter period of time than the products that contain THC. They tend to last a lot longer, but it also depends on what's going on in the body. How much repair does that ECS need? Uh, yeah. Right. So we might still need to supplement more, but okay. that's at least like a, a way to start thinking about it. So
1: maybe like as like four hours. E- e-
2: yeah. So, so in human, so we know this better in humans and we're more like extrapolating to animals and it mm-hmm. seems pretty true. Four to six hours for a CBD dominant product 8 to 10 for a THC containing one. Obviously it depends on what you have in your stomach. Same thing for animals, how they're going to respond to it. So there's lots and lots of variation in there, but that's kind of what we know from the human side. And I, I think it holds pretty true for animals.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, and <laughs> I've got so many questions. So <laughs> uh, from listening to my close personal friend, Joe Rogan talk about our marijuana products, mm-hmm. uh, my understanding is that taken orally, it can be sort of psychoactive. Uh, is in people. Is there any evidence of that in dogs? Can can your dog be tripping out while he's taking this?
2: Well, I think in order to answer that, we have to talk about what the term psychoactive means Mm -hmm. and what that means in translation from humans to animals. Mm -hmm. So, What psychoactive truly means in a medical sense is it acts on the psyche. So it acts on anything that is nervous system based, brain based. Mm -hmm. So that's most of our pharmaceuticals. So kind of everything is psychoactive. So it's actually a pretty big misnomer for the cannabis industry to use THC as psychoactive and CBD is not. We've just said um, Remy gets sedate a little bit on CBD. That is a change of his psyche. So you've just given us an example that CBD is psychoactive. Yeah. So then that kind of makes it really hard for us to pull from human stories and say, how psychoactive was it?
1: Mm. Um, I guess maybe I mean, uh,
2: psychedelic, psychedelic. Yeah. So what is psychedelic, right? So the revealing of the psyche that requires that we know what is in the psyche of our animals. yeah, And that's tough, right? Possible
1: to measure really, right? What
2: are they, what are they dreaming about? What are they memorize? How do they sort their memories? But, just because we don't know doesn't mean we shouldn't explore. Mm-hmm. So um, I I don't think I've said it in this podcast, but I spoke it in the lecture. So I was a, a military. I am a military veteran. Spent ten years in the in the U.S. Army. So PTSD and psychological issues. All those are very near and dear to my heart from friends and colleagues and that sort of thing. And so we've followed very closely the MDMA trials that are mm-hmm. being sponsored by the DoD, FDA. Like just how amazingly those are going one of my very hopefully hopefully soon research projects is I would love to research MDMA in animals. Because not only would that show us a little bit more about how they are processing their memories because we're able to change them. I think it would teach us a lot about how humans are processing their memories, but then also answer some of the questions you're asking is, does an animal have the ability to be psychedelic? Are, Are they looking at their memories? Personally, I would say yes, because we see them flinch from a car or like a guy with a beard or someone with a top hat, like they, they do sort and store memories. They
0: recall them. Similar action. to us. Mm.
2: Yeah. And, and so we see that.
0: And especially with MRI technology now, we can start to see the different regions of the brain. Absolutely.
2: Lighting up. So if we just be willing to accept that they may have those memory storing capacities like mm. we are, I think we're going to see just human and animal health explode yep. when we can really start implementing concepts of one health we can use either species yeah. to be able to say like, oh, well, it happens there, like an isomorphism, right? We're using one to be able to transfer between the other.
0: Yeah, which has been done predominantly throughout the ages. Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. we know what we know about behavioral sciences now, thanks to our animals who uh, were suffering at the hands of some scientists earlier yeah, on.
2: Hopefully we can just do that <laughs> in a little bit more of a humane manner. It's
0: interesting, the MDMA studies that you're doing, i
2: Think about some <laughs> of the the interesting problems that we're gonna encounter there. Mm. Right. So they're just in phase three trials for the human MDMA. Are mm. you all following? Yeah, that? A like little it's bit, a yeah. very, very interesting piece. So it, it's still a schedule one substance, so it's not available to the veterinary market, but when it is 2020, 2021, schedule two, um, veterinarians are schedule two providers. Yep. It is accessible, but we have to be really humble and say, do we have the ability? Do we know enough about an animal' psyche mm-hmm. to be able to guide them through this, right? Like what's one of the big tenets of the MDMA trials is that it is a guided therapy. Mm-hmm. One, it'll be the first medications ever prescribed in the company of a counselor, not just like, take this and go home." Mm-hmm. How do we do that in animals? Right? We have our pet parent, but sometimes the pet parent is the problem. We know than that not. that's yeah. true. Yeah. And what do we do about consent? Is consent something that we worry about in animals? Should we? Could we? So there's. it's not just a, oh, oh, we proved it, let's use it. I think it has amazing implications and we should be looking at it, but we also have to be really careful that we're not bringing old single molecule research paradigms into mm-hmm. a, a new kind of technology. So amazingly fascinating, but very complicated, I think. The thing
0: on consent, I don't want to ambush this whole topic, but the thing of consent is an is an interesting one especially when we're giving oral medication i mean i my dog doesn't um, consent when I'm trying to give him a worming tablet for argument's sake, you know, yep. like he will eat it, but he'd never said to me, Oh, like I'm okay with you doing this. Like I have to disguise it in food or force it down his throat. So he never consented to the fact that he was going to take it. You know, I mean, I know there's chewables that are more tasty to the dog, but if I'm actually going to give him a hard pill, he doesn't go, yes, please. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, put his tongue out and say, oh, I'm going to take this in. So, you know, I find that an interesting topic in, yeah. in general.
2: I think one of the Areas of medicine that we should look in for guidance on this is pediatric medicine, mm-hmm. right? The the children who are being medicated with cannabis for seizures that they have no control over, no input on how they they just want to not be ill. Yes, and so their parents are taking that responsibility for consent. Yeah, and we use that term pet parent very intentionally. But see,
0: I like that better because you're effectively the guardian of the dog, Absolutely. and I mean, and the consent should lie with you
2: but again it raises questions of good pet parenting yep. just like good human parenting so yeah. so again i think it's something that we need to dive into with our sleeves rolled up Mm -hmm. as a community and say well we may not have a really easy answer that doesn't mean we just ignore it we say let's look at it let's look at it Mm. and bring in like everybody and again i think that one health is going to be where we find our answers Mm. why did you choose that route in dealing with pediatrics why is that okay why do you think that's a good route we like it we don't like it yep but we have to be willing to tackle it yeah
1: that's so complicated dealing with the pet parent and the pet and the transfer of that anxiety or potential anxiety. Mm-hmm. We've, we've done episodes on that with our birdie who spoke yesterday, who's mm-hmm. a, a clinical psychologist. And, um, I even told a story one time I was, I was doing a consult. This lady was telling me about how her reactive dog to the doorbell and blah, blah, blah. And she mm-hmm. tells me the whole story about it. Uh, and then well, as we we're talking, someone came over just mm-hmm. by pure fluke and, you just couldn't have arranged this any better. The dog was behind her and I was, look, I was talking to her and the dog was there and I saw the dog look to her mm-hmm. and see her start to freak out and then started to freak out. And I was like, <laughs> I can't help you here. Like this has nothing to do with the dog. Like you need, I, I actually said to her at the time, I was like, do you happen to have any mental health issues? And she's like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm riddled with anxiety. <laughs> and I was like, well, but a perfect example it, to to observe the dog, and not her. You'd say, "Oh, yeah, for sure, this dog's riddled with issues." But he just looked straight at her and saw her have a meltdown, and then was like, "Okay, I guess we're all having a meltdown." It's such a difficult thing to then talk about the administering of any drugs at all to that dog.
2: Absolutely, hard one, right? Is it nothing's necessarily out of balance for them? Mm. They don't necessarily need anything medicated. They are responding appropriately to the yeah. distress of their pet parent. Yeah,
1: appropriately is the word, right? Yeah. Like that's it's exactly what. Yeah. And everybody in the house is freaking out. You should. <laughs> something obviously
2: scary is coming. Yeah. So I should be prepared. Yeah. But I think you bring up a, a really, really interesting point in there about, you said you asked her about her own health issues. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's come up very recently in the last couple of months. We just started to recognize in our consults that I'm not actually sure how yet we're going to handle. Yeah, When we recognize that the household, the pet parent is influencing the medical condition. So the example I'll give you is seizures. So we're finding really interesting intersections between someone in the household having migraines, usually stress induced migraines and the animal seizuring. Wow. So we need much more detail here and much more careful journaling, but it's something that I really didn't ever recognize before Mm. until kind of recently in a lot of different seizure cases. So where is my scope of practice line? I I am not, Mm. I'm not a physician. It is beyond my scope of practice to really even talk through or counsel mental health issues with this pet parent. However, it is impacting my patient. It is absolutely affecting their welfare and medical decisions that I'm going to make. Yeah. So those lines become more and more blurred. So we have, again, some avenues. One health, right, that we are start working on community health as a group, that it's not just human and animal and then you do your own thing and then no one talks in the middle, So, I don't know yet how we're going to solve this, but we're um, actively exploring having a human health practitioner as our receptionist so that they have that first intersection, can kind of identify those things. Having um, a a human practitioner actually take consults. Just, I I don't know what the answer is going to be, but it's something that's absolutely whatever it's going to be has to be addressed and and looked at.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, So, let's move on from the anxiety stuff, talk about acute illness. What can we? I don't want to take all your time. But what are some of the acute illnesses that you think might be best treated with cannabis products?
2: So um, when you say acute meaning like just recently happened, because I would say probably more the chronic, chronic yeah, illnesses sorry, yeah, is chronic I mean like, chronic
1: pain. yeah, and I mean like physical conditions of okay. the body,
2: sure. um, pain, probably number one. And the reason we see it work so well is because what John was talking about of how those neurons function, we see very direct action, direct change. and then, I feel better. Mm -hmm. And it's also easier to dose. I give an animal cannabis. He's walking better in half an hour, two hours, right? So it's like, oh, this actually works. Seizures are very, very fun to work with because we see lots of positive changes there. And we can also measure it as well. So that's why anxiety is hard because there's so many fuzzy pieces around it. So pain, seizures, um, GI tract would probably be next, whether that be inappetence, Uh, vomiting, diarrhea, just any of those pieces, but that kind of comes down to inflammation again. And then cancer probably being very, very big up in there, whether that be definitive care. So we're trying to actually stop this cancer cell from producing or palliative care in that we are not necessarily going to win this battle against cancer, but we're going to make sure that these, however long we have this animal is great quality.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you notice a increase in appetite in, in animals, right? Absolutely. yeah it's just like in people that do get the munchies.
2: Yeah. Well, well, so so there's a difference between munchy like hyperactive appetite and then an animal who wasn't eating eating. Right. And so I tend to see um they're not truly getting the munchies and they weren't hungry and now they're eating more. It's more that we're regulating the GI tract and now they feel like That's eating. interesting. So yeah. mm. you, a pet parent would probably say like, oh, he has the munchies, but it was probably that he felt really bad previously yeah. and wasn't having his normal eating cycle.
0: Cool. I run boarding kennels. This is going to be a very interesting conversation with some pet owners. Yeah. When it becomes legal, I'll just say, hey, we'll just give him a cookie and uh It'll solve their issue. Yeah. Well, again, it, it's, it's helping them
2: adjust to a new situation, yeah. right? Yeah, it's I, not, I agree. It is the GI tracking and some primary things there, but it's more, I can eat. Like yeah. I can go into that more parasympathetic I can chill. mode.
1: I can yeah. relax. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So just on that, Glenn mentioned it being legal. Like obviously we're from Australia. Uh, most of our listenership is in the US, uh, but it's illegal in Australia. You can get hemp-based uh, CBD products. But can you tell us a little bit about choosing a product? Because- Uh, You know, I I was just listening to you talk and that's something I actually am a little bit sort of sketchy about is uh, for myself. I mean, I don't get drug tested anymore, but that was a big concern of mine. Like I don't want to, I don't want to fail a drug test because I'm taking a CBD product. But so that's not so relevant because no one's drug testing their pets. But what I'm concerned about is knowing what is actually in the bottle.
2: Yes, absolutely. I will say that particularly sporting animals can be tested. Mm. So we see this very big in the horse world right now that it used to be only THC that was penalized for being found in a horse's blood system. And just now they're changing the regulation to be any cannabinoid. Wow. So slightly negative, but I actually say, we'll think we'll see a positive trend in that we're just going to use it more for horses, which respond really well to it and then wash them out before we before they run. Right. So I think we're actually going to see better from the horse's well-being than anything cool. anything else. So a little bit on I guess choosing a product, it really comes down to finding a CoA sort certificate of analysis. you can't get past that. You have to know exactly what molecules are in that product. And that is what's going to demonstrate freedom from pesticides and heavy metals and that type of thing. So I would never use a product if I didn't have a certificate of analysis on it. And the companies who are doing a really good job know that, and they're going to make it readily available.
1: Right. So that would, that's basically a label you can read.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like a nutrition label. It's going to tell you the ins and outs of the product that you're potentially going to use.
1: You know, that's tricky uh, from a really personal standpoint, because I'm, I'm not sure exactly, but I think in Australia, the... The, the law is for CBD products. They can't make any claims of anything. So they can't actually produce that COA that might be on a website or something, but on the bottle mm-hmm. that they're, they're kind of nothing. The one that I take is apparently really good and blah, 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 but uh, it just says like oil on the bottle. <laughs> right?
2: So, so there is a difference between what, can be on a label, especially if you're in like the dispensary environment, there are strong regulations there. That doesn't mean that the companies still can't make that available on a website. So this is something that we run into Canada quite a bit Mm -hmm. of are very strict protocols of what can be on the box, on the label, and they cannot include things like other cannabinoids or terpenes. However, the companies are saying, but on our website, we have this information. So you still see ways that companies can set themselves apart and still do a good, Good job. Mm-hmm. That does kind of lead into a little bit of the liability piece. Sure. And I'll just say a quick word unless you want to go into that no, more. No, but, um, so it's still in the U.S., even though we have recreational cannabis in some states and medical in some others, it, it is still not possible for a veterinarian to prescribe cannabis. Right. And the word recommend is also a little bit sketchy just because that word has been co-opted for some of the legal state. We can, physician can write a recommendation type things. That doesn't stop us from interacting with it. We're careful about the wording, but our company and what we're trying to talk to veterinarians about is taking more of a harm reduction education route. Mm -hmm. So our pet parents are initiating this. This is happening to our patients. So instead of taking that directive, I'm going to tell you what needs to happen. When a pet parent initiates with me and says, I'm going to give my animal cannabis, whether you like it or not, now help me make sure my animal's safe. That really leaves aside the legal restriction piece and mm-hmm. says my oath as a veterinarian is to make sure this animal is safe. Yep. So I'm going to uphold that while still being very true to the to the law and making sure I don't cross those boundaries. So there are very much ways that we can make sure our pets are safe, keep our oath while still staying within the right side of the law while also still being active on the advocacy side and saying, well, this is, this makes it difficult for me. I have to do a little bit of a semantic dance. Let's try to change this. But in the meantime, I'm just still going to make sure my patients are safe.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. That's a, that's a tricky little spot that you're in. (laughs) So in line with that, is do you have an online resource or something that people can can check out?
2: Yeah. So that's one of the best ways for people to start that conversation with their veterinarians. So our website is veterinarycannabis.org and we're trying to make sure that's a resource for all the communities, pet parents, veterinary professionals, and then the cannabis industry itself. Um, one of my favorite articles on there is how to start the conversation. So if your listeners are kind of, I don't know how to broach the subject with my vet care team, it can be a really good way to start thinking about keeping a journal, bringing your packaging in, starting the conversation, just so that both sides know where you're coming from. And if we can, we can solve this through education. If yeah. we were all on the same page, mm. this would not be a problem. So we just need to, one, know more about the ECS, people will be a little bit more open-minded about new new paradigms and trying new things, but also sticking to science, right? There's a lot of marketing hype that puts everybody off. Yeah. We really need to make sure we're being critical, scientifically critical as we evaluate all these things.
1: It's a funny one because it, it it is a taboo subject, right? Because it's been an illegal drug for so long mm-hmm. uh, and is still in so many places around the world. and and. I know to broach that subject for people can be like, I I can only use myself as an example, but I'm riddled with injuries and I live in constant pain Mm -hmm. and I, I have a super addictive personality and do not want an opiate addiction. So I just don't take any of the drugs that I really should take. And so I I choose the pain over that. And if there were an avenue to try something else, Mm -hmm. there's that feeling of like, Oh, I have to go to the, I'm going to the the doctor to ask to get high. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like he will get me as, out of it via opiates as I like. They'll give me as much as that as I can take. Mm -hmm. But this other avenue is like, oh, it's a bit sneaky and a bit dirty. Right. (laughs) And and I have to be careful that I'm only getting the hemp CBD and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Right. So it's, it's good that there is an avenue that people can start the conversation.
2: Absolutely. And I think it comes down to that paradigm of what are we doing with cannabis? If you're Focusing on cannabis, it's very easy to go down the ways you can misuse it because there's ways to misuse everything. Mm-hmm. If instead we're focusing on the endocannabinoid system, there's no argument whether that exists or not. Right. No matter what the laws are in your state or country, the ECS is present it exists, and we're learning more about it every day. So if we just focus more on what that ECS is doing, it makes it less scary to say, oh, I, I understand why I need a little bit of THC today, but I don't need it tomorrow versus just, I have to be high all the time, yeah. which is the people who, there are, there are addicts to marijuana, Yeah, of course. but it's more because there's not a guidance piece of what they're trying to treat. So again, I, I think that ECS is the star of the show and cannabis kind of takes a sideline. It's cool, but it's the ECS that's really, really important.
0: Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And what's the support like in your industry?
2: Uh, specifically from like my veteran yeah. colleagues. Very good.
0: Are they enthusiastic about it? Is yes. it a new science?
2: Yes, but it's a little bit scary right? yep. because it is an entirely new science. Mm. There's a problem with balancing all the new information that is coming out about the things we already know mm-hmm. and then learning this entirely new piece that also has a very new way of being handled. If it was just a new drug and I said, here's your dose and we would kind of know how to work with it better because it requires a different kind of paradigm of thinking about the body. It can be really intimidating. And I think this is important for pet parents to know of most of the time there can be some frustration of why won't my vet answer me, or even on the human side, why isn't my doctor talking to me about this? But keep in mind that every medical practitioner took an oath to do no harm. Mm. And if there is not enough information that it is safe or how to make it beneficial.
0: It's unknown territory. Yeah, it, mm. it
2: really is more within that medical practitioner's practice to say, I think you should be really careful. Yep. So it's incumbent on those medical practitioners to say, but I'm going to go research it. I'm going to go figure out so I can help you with it. Yep. But most of the time when you get a negative or I don't know, I don't want to talk about it, it probably comes more from that. I don't know how to guide you to do this safely. And I want to make sure that I'm not doing any harm more than like, I just don't want to talk to you about it. Yeah, And,
0: sure. and how can the community get behind this to support it more and make sure the research has been sought after and encouraged?
2: Well, I'll, I'll speak from a very personal perspective. So mm. our company perspective first, it is very difficult to get research done because most of the research institutes are federally funded. So that creates a very difficult. So
0: that's around the current laws, right? It, mm. It's
2: it's hard. It, it can be done, and we are doing it, but it's very slow. And most of the research that is done, even at the university level, has a company backing it, saying we want you to research our product. That means that there's automatically bias introduced there, as well yeah. as you're only researching one molecular profile. I think there is absolutely an opportunity here to introduce to the global community of publicly funded research, which would allow us to look at things that don't necessarily fit into our university paradigms at the moment, as well as make really rapid strides based on clinical, what we've seen clinically. Mm. So pet parents who are interested, this is not yet a function of our business, but something that could be very, very quickly. We would love to see pet parents who are interested enough in making sure we have good research to say, Great. I can give $5. Like we don't need a company to sponsor this. We want to do it from a purely scientific basis. Mm-hmm. There are absolutely ways to get around this. We just have to do it together as a, as a community. Yep. And then just on an easier scale, making sure they are telling their veterinary team that this is important to them. Mm-hmm. That's, what's going to drive the veterinary community to say, Oh, I do have the backing of my clients. I'm going to figure out how to work with this. So any practitioner knowing they're supported by their patients is going to do more research and make sure they know more.
0: Fantastic.
1: It's truly fascinating stuff. It really um, is. I, I hope that more people can get behind it. Can you give that website again? People will. Yeah.
2: So it's veterinarycannabis.org.
1: Yep. And and there's, what's on there? What, what are people going to see? So
2: we, um, it's basically trying to be a resource for those three big communities, community, veterinary, professional, and then industry. So mostly the website focuses on education. We have uh, training classes that technicians can take that allows them to kind of get into the space of how do I coach my clients? How do I coach my pet parents? Um, we have our symposium coming up, which is we're really excited about and gearing up for so They can find information about that there. Um, what do they have? A consult is another really big thing. So pet parents can connect with us directly and we'll connect with their veterinarians. So. Lots of that, but mostly focus on the education and consulting.
1: Awesome.
0: Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks absolutely. so much for giving up your time. That was definitely one of the more cerebral conversations we've had yeah, for a long cool. time. And it's different. <laughs> it's a little bit outside of our scope. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was absolutely fascinating because I don't know anything about it. Yeah. And listening to you speak, because I went to one seminar and Pat went to another. And he heard yours and he said, oh, this is fantastic. We've got to get her on the podcast. Well,
2: thank you. Thank you so much. But I, I do want to say to that that. It's amazing for me to watch this industry develop that Mm. the things that were very difficult to talk about because we didn't even understand them a year ago, now we have better ways to explain them. Just for instance, um, John who's taking our our cannabis counselor class um, did a, a mini presentation for our staff and I was very impressed by just the graphics that he had put together that are better than something I've seen previously because he's consolidating all the information we're bringing. So Mm. it can be really intimidating to think we're never going to solve this or we're never going to find the answer. But it's people who are listening to all these different things now and saying, oh, that makes sense. Let me write something that gets this good information out. So we're making amazing progress. It's just like chipping away at it. Well, thank you for your bravery.
0: Because it takes takes bravery to stand up in a system where other people frown on it and they look down on it and say, well, this is not part of the institution. These
1: stoners just want to get their dog stoned. (laughs) They just want to get baked on the couch with their
0: dog.
2: (laughs) That is, that is very true. But thank you again. It Mm. it is absolutely a heart passion project for me. Again, on, on the human side, there are so many people that I love and have lost that this would have either changed their life or this was their only lifeline. Mm. And then as a practitioner, I see how many of my patients and my clients with their patients just deal with some things that I think in cannabis and the endocannabinoid system really can heal. So I I think the world in five and 10 years will not be what we recognize it today. We just have to start to set these things in motion and we're really, really close to that. So that's that's my, my vision for the future. It's exciting.
1: We talk a lot about it. And like I always talk in training that when raising a dog, it has a genetic bandwidth of capability Mm -hmm. and training will let it fall wherever it falls inside that bandwidth of capability at the top or the bottom. And some dogs bottom is going to be better than other dogs tops. That's just, that's Mm -hmm. genetics. That's how the dice gets rolled. But I think that, from my point of view, I'm looking at this as a, a supplement that could potentially be used along the way. And it's not a crutch, but a supplement to help get to the top of that genetic bandwidth of capability and live the best life that that dog is ca- or cat or whatever is capable of living, Absolutely. which I think is super cool.
2: Mm. I won't start down, down that new topic, but another area of interest of mine is cannabis and epigenetics. Okay. So how that's impacting to reverse um, it? Uh, or shape it. Yep. So and even generations down the line, mm. right? Like, I think that's something that we're again just touching on in science, epigenetics. Yeah, as I'm yeah. fascinated
0: in the concept of that. And I think
2: that when we look at both these new things that we're figuring out, we'll find some very interesting intersections, which speaks exactly to what you're saying: of there is a genetic start, a genetic pattern, but where that animal and human actually falls in there mm. is environment and training and life experiences, just stuff that happens. Yep. Can we find a way to make sure that those experiences, life falls in a good direction in a positive direction, or even undo some of the things that have happened in the past? I don't think that we should just accept that bad things scar you forever. Scars can be stronger and scars can be better for it. And maybe we can actually undo them and make something better out of it.
1: Super cool. I'm going to wrap it up before I ask you more
2: questions.
1: (laughs) Thank you again, both of you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Uh, If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you access to another educational episode, 10 bucks live Q&A. And if you want to give us a $1,000, you can. That's fine. And the other thing you can do is get onto our Teespring store and buy some merch and rep some cool gear. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. And Glenn, for some new people who have never heard it before, go ahead and play the music. It's horrible, but he loves it.